We've made it. Another series of Bring Back V10s is coming to an end, and that means we're handing the controls over to you, our listeners, to get us down the home stretch. Somewhat predictably, we are once again splitting our series finale into two episodes as we've been inundated with your questions throughout the series, either using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or from those of you kind enough to leave us a five-star podcast review. I'm Glenn Freeman, and before I introduce our guests for part one of Ask Us Anything, I'd like to give a very special thank you to everyone who has listened to Bring Back V10s so far. We're past 160,000 downloads now, which is more than enough to justify coming back for Series 3, and we'll have more details on that next week. But now let's get on to our guests, and it's the return of a pairing we brought in for one of these episodes at the end of Series 1, Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Now, gents, there's no traditional opening question this time, but I've got a different one for you. So without giving too much away, which question are each of you looking forward to the most in the list that we've put together? And Mark, you can go first. Uh, there's a parallel history question in there somewhere, which um, is quite intriguing. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that one. What about you, Gary? Well, there's a Jaguar question there, which I'm quite looking forward to trying to um, extinguish some of the myths around what really did cost me my uh, my career uh, designing Formula 1 cars, um, especially with Jaguar. But yes, I'm looking forward to that one. I think I've made a note on that question to say give us the short version. Um, but we'll come back to that in a bit. But we are going to start with a Jaguar-related question, and it's from Double Waved Yellow, who says, uh, would love if you could talk about Dario Franchitti's disastrous Jaguar test and its implications on his career and how it's a shame we never saw him in F1. But before we come to Gary on that, we're going to kick this finale off with another special guest. So let's hear what Dario himself remembers of this unfortunate, or should that be fortunate, sequence of events in the summer of 2000. It came to pass because I think Julian Jacoby had had a conversation with Jackie um, and obviously driven for Jackie and post Stewart Racing. And they did, then they did Stuart Grand Prix and Jackie and I kind of did this little not dance, but we talked about me driving there and it never, it never happened. And so Julian had this conversation with Jackie and said, why don't you, why don't you put Dario in the, in the Jaguar, let him test it. And Jackie said, oh, so that's a good idea. So the next thing I know, I'm in Dearborn at Ford's um, headquarters, meeting a bunch of the the higher uppers um, to discuss this test. And then not only the test, but then what the future would look like. So um, they were basically saying, "Look, if we're testing you, we want to have a you know a hold on you. We want to be able to to do some." Um, so I went there, signed a eventually signed a contract which was sort of a test contract for that that particular test and then I can't even remember how many years in the future it was but it was I mean it was a fairly it was a serious commitment from both sides and um give you some idea how the Jaguar spent money in the wrong places I flew over on Concord for the seat for it <laughs> and flew back on Concord after the seat for it um definitely the most expensive seat for I've ever done but um he did that and um, went, showed up at Silverstone for the test and there was all kinds of it was bizarre things. Like there was a press conference and my lawyer at the time, Peter Goodman, who'd been my lawyer since Boxall Junior days, he was literally sitting just off stage. And every time I got asked a question, I'd look at Peter to see if I could answer it. It was utter 
madness. I get in this Jaguar that's on these weird groove tires, and um, I remember the, the, the initially it went okay. Initially, it wasn't too bad, um, but there was a couple. There was several things going on. Um, from my side, I'd had that big accident at um, Homestead at the start of the season, and I had a pretty bad head injury, which actually turns out took about two and a half years to recover from. Um, and I was struggling at the time to learn new new things. So that was from my side. That was probably one of the the issues. Other was I damaged my neck in the accident, and I couldn't really train. So Silverstone's probably not the place you want to do that. So anyway, I was struggling with that. That from from my side, but initially went quite well. Got up to speed. Speed got up to something close to speed fairly quickly. But then that first day, the progression didn't really sort of happen after a certain point. Then. The next day I showed up and I went to get in the car and I'm like, no, 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 this is your car. Because I think I think Bertie, Luciano Bertie was in the other car and he'd had a suspension failure on the hangar straight um, and damaged the car. No fault of his. And um, so they gave him my car and I got, God knows what it was. I mean, I, I, I joke about it saying it was the show car because I had you know, play in the steering rack and all this stuff. It just was just crap. Um, and yeah, the second day was absolutely terrible it was pretty clear pretty quickly that I wasn't I wasn't wanted by the people there because I was forced on them by Ford America it left a bad taste because of that it wasn't a case of okay let's go there and do our best for this guy show show him in the best light whatever um see what you can do it was very much like let's just go through the motions here and it became apparent pretty quickly they didn't really want me around so um yeah, I did the test again, jumped back on Concord <laughs> and, uh, and headed back to America. And I was racing at Michigan the next weekend and I remember thinking, thank God. And then I was getting, I was getting driven through New York a couple of days later and it was Neil Wrestler phoned me and said, yeah, we're not going to do we're not going to do the deal. And I said, okay, that's good because I really don't want to do it. <laughs> um, I had really not enjoyed that the, the Jaguar experience the um the attitude in the team the paddock whatever it wasn't it just left a very bitter taste um you know Bobby Rahal went back went into the team to run it after that and he he came to me one day and said oh I looked into all that what a farce what was going on there and he asked the question I said Bob I don't know I don't know why that happened what happened um you know things have a habit of work, working out you know and I'm happy with the decisions I made and the decisions that were maybe made for me. It all, it all, in my opinion, it all worked out well. You know, would I have given up any of the indie wins for a chance to run, let's be honest, midfield in Formula One? No. Okay, Gary, that's Dario's version of events. What do you remember of uh, what went on during uh, those couple of days at Silverstone? Yeah, I mean, Dario's obviously got his uh, opinions on what happened. I wasn't at the test for all of the time, but, um, you know, IndyCars and Formula One are very different. Um, I spent a bit of time out in America, so I sort of understand the IndyCar scenario a bit. But, you know, Formula One, the car comes into the pits, the driver puts the, put the car into the garage, the driver will sit in the car, talk to you on the radio constantly, and you'll, you know, you'll do setup changes or whatever, and then you go back out again. Formula, uh, an Indy car, the, the opposite happens. You know, the driver will come into the pit lane. They don't really have many garages there at any of the races. Gets out, sits in the pit wall, has a chat with the engineers, gets back in a bit later on, and, and away he goes again. And, you know, at that point in time, we didn't, I didn't know 
that uh, Dario had concussion or had banged his head or that he had uh, broken his neck. So, you know, a bit of a different set of circumstances. And Silverstone has got very high G levels, so, you know, at the end of the day, his neck was probably hurting a little bit. It was a whole new car to come to terms with, with paddle shift and stuff like that, which was different. So you end up having a, a situation that we didn't know about, and I don't think we treated him badly. Um, there was a change of car during the, from one day to the next day, but that was all, you know, that was all okay. And, and again, I never knew about the Ford contract. Flying back and forward to the, on Concord to the States and, and back to the UK, etc., was, was typical of what Ford would do. Um, it was a very... We never knew really what Ford were up to. They never ever disclosed it all to us. We, we were, you know, the hidden bunch back here. We, we just had to get on with our job as best possible. And it could have been a lot better um, with a little bit more communication and understanding, I suppose. And, you know, Dario was an excellent driver. Would he have made it to, to be competitive with the likes of Michael Schumacher in the Ferrari or Mika Häkkinen or any of those guys? You know, it would have been tough, very, very tough. I think he's a competent driver, but probably at the level of, you know, that uh, Valtteri Bottas or Rubens Barrichello or Eddie Irvine, that sort of level, but a competent driver for sure. Mark, do you ever look at Dario as sort of a lost talent in F1 for the, uh, the 21st century? Um, I, th- I think he was one of several that were, uh, you know, of, of that generation. That, uh, certainly you would have put as a potential F1 driver. Um, but I think he had a, a fantastic career out in, um, in, in IndyCar. And I think that was probably, as, as he himself said, the, the, the best option for him. And I don't think he would um, try and change anything. And so, no, he wasn't one of the obvious ones that was crying out to be in F1, but he was certainly one of the contenders that just might have been great. You know, you, you can't really tell the full potential of someone until, until they actually get in F1, until they've actually had a, a realistic chance at it. Um, so he wasn't, he, he wasn't, um, a, his junior career wasn't a Lewis Hamilton or Michael Schumacher junior career, but it was it was pretty good. Um, and he, he was certainly worthy of a, a chance in Formula One, but no, I didn't look back on him thinking, oh, what a lost opportunity. I, I just thought, well, um, that was that was how that one was meant to be, and um, he's he's had this fantastic career over there, and you know he's he's a great guy, and he, he's um, he's he's brought a lot to the sport as well. Yeah, as, as Dario said, don't think he's too upset with how things worked out, and we appreciate him taking the time to tell us his side of that story. But let's move on. Stephen Taylor has a question that I'll throw to you, Mark. And uh, it's, is the McLaren MP420, so that's a 2005 car, the best car not to win the world championship? It's got to be up there, Stephen. It was by some margin the fastest car of 2005, usually faster than Alonso's Renault, which won the championship. Um, It was quite a different car of the Renault, which had been developed over several years around the traction of the Michelin, so it had this rear weight weight distribution and a, and a matching aero balance. The most, most of the aeros seemed to be on the back. Um, when you looked at the front wing, it was very simple at the front compared to the McLaren, which, which carried a lot more, lot more wing. Um, the McLaren was sort of more conventional in aero balance. That's probably why it had better efficiency, even if its traction wasn't as good. But it was also pretty disastrously unreliable, mainly engine, and that was its downfall, really. There were just way too many grid penalties and retirements because of the engine, which had been developed to have this really low crankshaft height. And I think that was something that um, was stipulated by Adrian Newey. And this was a 
contributed cause to the unreliability. So yes, it was the fastest car of the season, no question. But partly that was gained by an engine concept that caused the unreliability. So arguable if it was really better or not. But also, you know, bear in mind that year that Ferrari had been effectively neutered that year because of the single set of tyres ruling, which you, you had to get through the race on one set of tyres, which made their, their Bridgestones totally uncompetitive and you know, all the, the other top teams were all on Mitchell. And so, um, yeah, it would have been interesting to have seen uh, uh, that, that in the mix as well with competitive tyres. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely... a one of the contenders for that uh, status. Um, others would be uh, 91 Williams, FW14, uh, which, you know, was looking like a, it could have taken the title, um, but McLaren and Honda sort of came on with a spurt at the end. Or the 1990 Ferrari, or even the 2018 Ferrari, I'd, I'd, I'd say they're all, all contenders for that, um, that non <laughs> non-existent title. There's a lot of cars that, you know, didn't win the World Championship, to be honest, that you could say was the best. The MP420 um, was a derivative of the MP418, which was a bit of a disaster. Basically, it was the first time they tried to lower the the crank um, and the reduction in the sump height meant the oil system was was struggling to be consistent and, and you know, get the oil out of the engine, basically. So they had a, a couple of years of learning before they really got a car together that was that was capable of doing that. And as you say, Mark, the, you know, the the difference in the Renault philosophy to the McLaren philosophy was um, the weight distribution, really. Um, when you run the, the weight a lot further back in the car, you don't need to run as much front aero. But the thing is, if you can if you can get, get the front aero on the car, if your front wing is, is good enough design-wise, then you can run the weight forward, put more front wing on it, and you have to get more downforce over the whole car. So... That's quite important because otherwise you're thrown away down for it. So I think the, the Renault was better in low-speed corners, traction off low-speed corners. The McLaren was probably better in high-speed corners, uh, medium-speed and high-speed corners, just because it used the aero differently. Um, you know, it's it's one of those difficult things because it's you have to have two drivers, and we're seeing that now with... with uh, with Red Bull, really, you have to have two drivers scoring points. Reckoning won seven races, Montoya won three. Um, but Montoya had a very slow start to the season. It was probably the British Grand Prix before he got his act together. So should they have won um, championship? Probably not. At the end of the day, it's all about points. And, you know, they didn't have the points at the end of the, end of the season. I was actually in the McLaren's office with Martin Whitmarsh in 2003 when the MP418 was headed out at, I think it was Barcelona, Barcelona Restaurant, I'm not quite sure, to, to do its final race run before um, potentially racing it. And Martin was all excited about it, and he got a phone call then, um, and he started shouting down the phone, which was a bit, a bit strange. Put the phone down, says to me, it caught fire leaving the pit lane, so um, sorry, but we, we didn't get that uh, that race run. So that was a typical example of the MP418. But they learned a lot during that period, and the MP420 was a derivative of that car. And that's a good shout out as well for our MP418 episode that we did early in Series 1. So if you're new to Bring Back V10s, go back and check that out once we uh, take a break at the end of Series 2. But we've got uh, another batch of questions now, all on similar subjects or a similar uh, era. And these are all about Ferrari in the mid-1990s. So we're going to group them together. The first one is from Kanye, who sent us quite a few questions. Uh, So thank you very much for those, Kanye. This is the one we've picked from your batch which is, can you tell me why Ferrari took so long to switch from the V12 engine 
to the V10 engine that it ran in 1996. So Mark, what can you tell us about Ferrari starting this era with its V12 and eventually deciding to follow everyone else really into, uh, into V10s? Well, the V10 ended up being the best compromise between power, fuel consumption and weight. Renault and Honda had come to that conclusion straight away for their engines in 89, which was the first year of the, the complete turbo ban. So I would say everyone was normally naturally aspirated for the first time. But it wasn't such a clear-cut thing. The, the V12's got significant advantages of its own, it's so much so that Honda, remember, switched from V10 to V12 for 91 and 92, as they figured the power increase was worth more than the disadvantages. It turns out it didn't seem to be quite, but they persevered with it. So it was actually quite a closely matched thing conceptually, I think, from an engineering point of view. And actually, as the materials and the bearing technology progressed, the, V12, the V12 may have come into its own. Um, so Ferrari ran their V12s for seven seasons, but the first two of them, 80, 89 and 90, they were they were terrific cars. The 89 car was a bit unreliable, but the, the 90 car might arguably have won the world title. So it wasn't obvious at that stage that there was anything much wrong with a V12 as, as a concept. And Ferrari then produced in 91, 2 and 3 a series of awful cars that were all over the place with the aero and the miles behind an understanding active ride. Lots of an internal upheaval as well. So the the V12 was the least of their problems. It didn't stand out as as this was the reason for their you know their, their their difficulties. And it was only as they began making progress on the aero side with John Bernard that the V10 really came onto the radar. And then they they stuck it in a car, the existing um, 95 car, towards the end of the year, and just it was quicker straight away. So it was obvious that, that was, they were on the right path with that. And, uh, yeah, that, that was it. The rest was history. Well, yeah, you know, it's a difficult thing, V12 to V10. Um, it's also a bit about the fuels that were available at that point in time. You know, whenever the change was happening, basically the, the V12 engine could be higher revving um, because it had a smaller bore for the given stroke. Um, the V10 engine... They really, you had a bigger a bigger bore um, if you wanted to carry the same the same stroke to try and um, run the revs. But the problem was that you couldn't get the fuel to burn across the top of the piston quickly enough. So then in come some chemically assisted fuels or very high level fuels from the fuel suppliers, and suddenly you could get the the fuel to burn across the piston quickly enough. So having a bigger bore on a V10 wasn't such a detriment because the fuel would burn fast enough to make efficient use of that diameter of bore and uh, you keep the short strokes you get the revs um, so it was really driven a little bit by by fuel combustion and fuel burn technology which really sort of bought into the fact that we needed the revs to get the power um, but you needed the fuel to burn as well otherwise you're just wasting it so that's really the direction that took us to v10s and then to v8s and i mean we're getting 20,000 rpm out of some of these engines in that sort of period so very very high rpm and um Again, as I say, it's not only just the engine, but the, uh, the fuels that suited it. Another decision Ferrari, of course, took for 1996 was to sign Michael Schumacher. And Frankie P asks, why did Schumacher sign for Ferrari? Is it true that McLaren offered him more money, but Willy Weber convinced him to join the Maranello team? What do you reckon, Mark? As far as we know from, um, from um, subsequent um, interviews and Talks with Willie Weber. McLaren, Willie Weber was uh, Schumacher's manager. 
McLaren did offer him a higher basic salary, yes. Um, but the merchandising opportunities as a Ferrari driver made it very obvious to um, Willy Weber that he would actually earn far more as a Ferrari driver than as a McLaren driver. And plus, Ron Dennis was famously restrictive on allowing external sponsorship deals for his drivers, and Ferrari was quite relaxed about it. It's true that it was Weber who was pushing Michael to look more seriously at the Ferrari offer because Michael was, at the, at the time, um, unconvinced. He was saying, well, you know, they, they, all, they all seem to be um, quite quite easy to pass on the, on the circuit. I, why, why, are we, why are we thinking of going there? Um, and I'm sure from Willie's standpoint, it was at least partly commercially motivated, this, this pushing Michael to, to have a look at it. But actually when... Michael spoke to Jean Tot, and then he talked it through with Ross Braun, who was at the time with Michael at Benetton. He began to understand how the Ferrari drive could be much more than just driving for another team. He was only then beginning to understand the weight of the Ferrari brand and the legend and how if he could be the one to bring success back there, because it had such a long dry spell, it could be absolutely enormous. And it could put him in the stratosphere, put his career in the stratosphere in a way that just being a paid employee of McLaren never could. So I think really that um, it was a, a decision made in the round and not just on, 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 on the basic salary. And the third and final one of our uh, Ferrari 95-96 questions, we'll start with Gary because it's about Eddie Irvine who got the second seat Stefan Jarvis asks, I'd like to know how Eddie Irvine got that Ferrari drive and kept it, as I don't recall his results before 1996 or even during and after being that spectacular. What was I not seeing? So Gary, you of course did see what Irvine was doing before he got the drive because he was driving one of your Jordans. Do you think at that point he was putting in performances that warranted being signed by Ferrari? Well, you know, I think it's, it's a difficult thing. Obviously, Eddie, he didn't have the sort of big career results, but you couldn't expect that from a team like Jordan. He did do a good job. He was very competent in there along with uh, with Barrichello. So at the end of the day, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't wrong. Um, but you've got to remember that EJ managed Irvine at that point in time, and he could sell anything. You know, snow to Eskimos is nothing to Eddie. So selling Irvine to Ferrari... Um, was a was a big deal. It was a great thing to happen. Eddie obviously earned out of it pretty well. But again, Eddie was very resilient. So as a teammate to um, Michael Schumacher, it it meant that Ferrari could really concentrate on on Michael being number one, and Eddie wouldn't get the hump about it. He just he just carry on. He didn't care. He would do what he had to do at that at that point in time. He was getting paid well, so he just had to do the best job possible. Make sure he brought in results when he needed to. Um, but really, it was his resilience. He didn't he didn't get down with, with bad results or being beaten. Um, and he didn't get too excited. It was good results. He just kept on doing the job as best he could. So very good at being Michael Schumacher's teammate when Ferrari were sort of trying to build their way through a, a very dry spell. Yeah, also, I think, if I could come in there, of Eddie's generation, there are only two drivers head and shoulders above the others, and Schumacher and Hacken, and the best of the others were, I'd say, were quite evenly matched, just different strengths and weaknesses. And Irvin was absolutely among the best of the others. Um, he was, you know, on a par with, like Gary says, Rubens, Coulthard, Villeneuve, Frensen, Fisichella, those guys. But above all, that team was very deliberately built around Schumacher. And the last thing they wanted was someone coming in with a, 
a super combative attitude that, that Villeneuve, for example, would certainly have done. And they, 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 they liked Eddie's realism, almost a cynicism. He understood the game far better than any of the others. And I think it had reached, reached peace with himself far easier than any of the others would have done. So I think he was the perfect choice. He got closer to Schumacher as the cars improved and it became less um, demanding to drive. And when Michael broke his leg, you saw that Eddie was able to step up to team leader status. So I think he's a, a, a very smart sign. And I think he was super smart and understanding why he'd been signed. Yeah, I think he probably handled it better, maybe mentally, than even Rubens did, even though Rubens was there for longer. I think Rubens was determined that he could go in there and beat Michael. And as we discussed earlier in the series with Austria 2002, he learned a few lessons along the way about why that wasn't the case. But Gary, we've got another Jordan-related question for you. This is from IndyCart. And he says, I love, or he or she says, I love hearing all these stories that you didn't know about or hearing about things that could have happened. Will you be doing anything about the Ayrton Senna, Eddie Jordan story about Ayrton being offered half of the team to drive for them? So a quick bit of context before I bring Gary in here. Uh, EJ says he offered Senna 25% of the team to join for 1993 alongside Rubens Barrichello, and that stake would increase to 49% at the end of the year. And the reason Eddie wanted to do this was because he thought owning 51% of a team with Senna was more valuable than 100% of a team without him. He says that Senna would pop over to see Jordan after tests with McLaren at Silverstone, because Jordan's base was, of course, across the road. And he even drove him to the airport in Brazil after Eddie had been over there having a meeting with Barrichello's sponsors. But Eddie says Ayrton thought long and hard about it, but in the end, nothing came of it. Gary, what did you know about this when it was going on at the time? Did Eddie keep you in the loop? Yeah, as I, I said earlier, Eddie could really... Um you know, sell anything to anybody. And he, uh, set, trying to sell Jordan Grand Prix um, to, Ayrton, to Ayrton Senna to come and drive for us, I wouldn't put it past him. I wasn't really kept in the loop um, that closely. I did know a bit about it, but I wasn't really sort of involved that deeply. Jordan weren't ready for Senna by any means. As a, as a team, you know, we needed to build up and the pressure of having somebody like Ayrton Senna who'd won lots of races and stuff just would have been too much for us. You know, whenever you're talking about trying to sell half the team to, to or give a half the team to Aaron Senna, Damon Hill was offered the, the rear leg of a horse. You know, I think it was the right rear leg of a horse that was based in Ireland. So it was, again, as I say, Eddie, Eddie would do anything to, to just try and pull a deal together. And what happens whenever he gets involved in that, it just spirals out of control. So I've been involved in a few of those type of meetings, and they are quite funny to listen to. Um, and you get kicked under the table a little bit here and there to sort of buy into the direction that Eddie's going in. Um, but it's, you know, it's how it is, really. Survival was the biggest thing. Um, and, it, you know, Eddie just needed to keep the team going. So anything he could have done at the time would have been positive for the team. But I don't think we would have been ready for Senna. I can't, I can't believe Damon Hill wanted the right rear leg of a horse. But uh, uh, let's move on to Timmy M's question, which technically breaks the rules of bring back V10s because it's about 2006, but it's about the only car from 2006 we're allowed to talk about. Because Timmy asks, why could Toro Rosso use an RPM limited Cosworth V10 engine that year? Why didn't Cosworth provide them with the same V8 that Williams was using? And was this something to do with Red Bull buying Minardi? So Mark, this was quite controversial at the time and it was linked to the Minardi sale at the end of 2005, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So that, um, that, that deal had been done when the team was still Minardi 
um, but it was subsequently bought by Red Bull. Um, the restricted V10 option, it was air restricted as, as well as revs. It did, the inlet uh, was restricted. Um, it was put in the regs for the low budget teams. Uh, and, and in theory, it was available for anyone in 2006 and seven, after which it would be phased out. And the development costs of the V10 were all ameliorated. So they were much cheaper than a new V8. And that contract between, as I say, between the team and Cosworth had been entered into when it, when it was Minardi and it was simply honored when, when it became Toro Rosso. I don't know if the Williams-Cosworth deal for 2006 specified exclusivity of the new V8, but I doubt it as Cosworth was very much in the market for customers. And when Red Bull bought Minardi, there was a, a fear from rivals that this gave Red Bull a foot in both camps if it turned out that the restricted V10 3 litre was still quicker than a V8 2.4. But in, in reality, that was never going to happen. And in the FIA later allayed those fears by agreeing they would change the equivalency with one day's notice if necessary if they thought the V10 had an advantage. So it was a bit of a storm and a teacup, really. It sounded a lot better than the V8s as well. But uh, we'll move on to a question from one of the people who left us a five-star review, and that's Kieran D998 who says, would it be possible to talk about the fall of the privateer teams era and how classic names fell off the grid, such as Arrows and Minardi? We've just briefly talked there about the sale of Minardi to Red Bull, so we'll focus on Arrows here. And before I throw this question to Gary, who of course worked at one of the most famous independent teams of this era, I met someone recently who worked for Arrows when it folded um, in 2002. And he told me that towards the end, the department heads were getting together every single week and they'd all bring their invoices that the team hadn't paid. They'd lay them all out on a table with management and then they'd have a big argument about which bills they were going to pay that week because that's how tight money was. But Gary, things never quite got that bad uh, any time that you were at Jordan, to my knowledge at least. I know Eddie had to borrow some money, certainly at the end of 1991. Do you think, though, by the early 2000s, did F1 just outgrow the, the true independence? You know, as an independent team, it's very easy to get left behind. You know, nothing, nothing's changed. It's the same right now. We've got the, you know, at the minute we've got the sort of two big teams um, in Mercedes and in Red Bull. Ferrari have got left behind this year, but they should be part of that. And in reality, Renault should be part of that as well. And then you've got the rest. And there's a second, maybe a second and a half sometimes of a gap between those two. So you've always had the big teams and the smaller teams. It's... Um, they just can outpower you, and it's just so so difficult. It's lovely to get a, a good race in sometimes uh, with a small team and beat some of the big boys. But in general, you know, when a sponsor walks into the paddock, they see more glitz and glamour from from the bigger teams because their motorhomes are bigger and their trucks are shinier, and they probably got an extra one. Um, but yeah, it's it's never been any different to be honest. Um, and because they get the better sponsors, they have more money. But if you if you look at ours as a as a team, my daughter was actually working for Aras when they were sponsored by Orange um, at the British Grand Prix when they didn't race. And she was looking after all the Orange guests. They were staying in London and they had to, uh, they were being helicoptered up to Silverstone, but actually it was foggy that morning, so they were brought up in a bus. And that was a bit lucky because they were slightly late of getting there on a Sunday morning. And the majority of that 20-odd people um, didn't actually know that Aras didn't race. They were just so caught up in the glitz and glamour of Formula One. The cars were, you know, were seen in the pit lane, the drivers were there, all that sort of stuff. But they, they didn't really take it in that, that Arrows didn't actually participate in that race meeting. So it was a quite a funny thing. And I think my daughter handled it very, very well. Yeah, I think anyone that didn't, any team that didn't get together with a, 
a car manufacturer was essentially done for long term because from the second half of the 90s, let's say, probably for about the next dozen years, the automotives were spending enormous sums in F1, pouring money in like seven, eight times what the tobacco companies ever had. And it was this that enabled the teams to go from around 150, 200 people to more like 800 or 1,000. And if you, if you missed that boat, really long term, you, you didn't have much of a prospect. EJ managed it, ducking and diving, as Gary says. Tom Walkinshaw arrows didn't, and Paul Stoddard sold out a Red Bull. So that you know that 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 really pretty much defines that that particular era for the independence. Right, Mark. I think you can go and put the kettle on and get yourself a cup of tea, maybe a couple of biscuits, because it's time for the Jaguar question, and it comes from Adam Kennedy. And uh, he says, how did Jaguar fall from fourth in the Constructors' Championship in 1999 and Stuart to ninth in 2000? Now, Gary and our audience, I promise you, we will do a full episode on this in the future. So if it's possible, Gary, give us the short version. Well, the funny thing about uh, the Jaguar fall from grace, I've related a bit to it there with the, with the, the piece about uh, Dario Franchitti, about how Jaguar... And, and the Ford management didn't really uh, sort of buy into the fact that, you know, it was better to work as a group rather than individuals. They kept, you know, secrets from you. never really knew what was going on. Um, but at the end of the day, the car started the season very well. The testing started very, very well. And both Irvine and Herbert were actually talking in the magazines that, you, you know, they could win races during the season and, and you know, they'd, they'd fight for the championship. Um, maybe a bit far fetched. Maybe you look back on it now, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But that was testing in Barcelona. And whenever, whenever we got to sort of races like Malaysia, we discovered that we had a major problem with the rear of the car. It was very unstable under braking and corner turning. You know, you hear that all the time now, like the Red Bulls doing the same thing. But we went through the season and not getting on top of it, as Red Bull have been doing. But it was um, it was down to some a diffuser stall. Basically, the air airflow underneath the car was stalling at low ride height, and then when you hit the brake pedal, it didn't reattach. And I got my, personally, I got my brain around it mid-season, but I was, I was told not to get involved with it, that the aerodynamics had to find these problems. We were using a wind tunnel in, in California, um, just outside San Francisco, so not exactly next door. You couldn't pop in there and, and do a little bit of a wind tunnel run and try and understand it. And I went to one of the wind tunnel tests, um, discovered there that the way the wind tunnel ran, you'd never have proved if a diffuser was reattaching correctly. Um, so then we came back and went to Elvington, an airfield in Yorkshire, and we ran there with a wool tufts in the diffuser and a camera up the back of the diffuser, and we could drop the rear right height down on a hydraulic damper and raise it back up at the same rate of change as, a, as you do for braking. And um, the wool tufts didn't reattach. We made some filler um, pieces out of, well, just basically body filler that night and put them um, into the diffuser. Next morning, diffuser reattached much, much quicker. So, you know, for the last two races of the year, which should have been like the middle of the season, to be honest, but for the last two races of the year, Malaysia and, and uh, Suzuka, we were actually quite competitive and scored our first points, you know. When you think on um, Suzuka in 99, Irvine was, uh, Michael Schumacher was on pole, um, Irvine was seventh at 1.3 seconds slower. You go to 2000 with the Jaguar. Michael Schumacher was on pole, and Irvine was seventh, 1.1 seconds off Michael. So, you know, actually in the same car, Eddie was slower than he was in the Jaguar relative to Michael Schumacher. So, I think the car could have been very good. 
if we'd learned that earlier in the season and got the bits on the car, we would have uh, had a much better um, result at the end of the season. But it was just the way it went, really, to be honest. Yeah, and we will cover that year, as I said, in, in much more detail in the future because there's so much, so much to talk about. But I think Gary's given us the main points there. And it won't be the last time that uh, a Ford management story relating to Jaguar comes up. I'm sure. But the next question is from Richard King. And Mark, I think this is the one you highlighted at the start of the episode. So you can take it first. Richard says, it's October 1990 and Alessandro Nanini doesn't have his helicopter accident. He was already signed to Benetton for the next season. So would Flavio Briatore have jumped on Michael Schumacher, which we talked about earlier in the series during 1991, if he still had Nanini? And if Nanini had stayed in the car... Would he have been world champion in 1994 instead? So quite a lot to get into there, Mark. Lots of hypotheticals. Where do you want to start? Yeah, I love these parallel universe yeah, scenarios. They're fascinating. Um, but w- would would he have still signed Schumacher if he'd had Nanini? Yes, yeah, he absolutely would have. Um, Michael's performances in the Group C Mercedes that year was was stunning and it, it wasn't it wasn't the best car the, the Jaguar was the best car and the Jaguar was being run by Ross Braun and Tom Walkinshaw and so Michael was performing in front of them and they, they they absolutely got how special Michael was and it was they not Briatore who first understood that and they were quite consistently telling Briatore that they, they they should get this have a look at this guy and I think it was only when Michael made that sensational debut in the Jordan at Spa that Briatore finally got it. And then I think Ross and Tom were saying, look, we told you, you why are you letting this guy walk around without a contract? Um, so the, Nanini was a good driver. He was capable of winning Grand Prix on a good day, but he was pretty quick. Um, according to his teammate, uh, Terry Bootson, he, he was pretty hopeless technically. Um, the, at a time before telemetry had really evolved very much, so he he was taking his cues from Boots and uh, as to how to develop the car, and, and he, he was pretty clueless on that aspect. Even though he had a quite quite a high degree of natural talent, so he he wouldn't have been the ideal guy to have been leading the team. But he'd have been a good number two to Schumacher. I did, but I don't in any universe see Nanini as the '94 world champion. No, no, Michael was a a very special once in a generation talent, and that's. That's what made it happen the way it did. And it, it would um, still have happened some variation of that way, I'm sure, without Alessandro's helicopter accident. You know, it's, it's like anything. It, given the right chance, I think Nanini was a very, very solid driver. I don't think he was, to be honest, a world champion, like Mark says. It's just one of those things that it was taken away from him. Would he have got better or would he have sort of stalled out? I, I don't really know. But if you take... Um, if you take whenever he did get his, his arm damaged in the helicopter accident, my very good friend Roberto Moreno um, took over the drive on the, 19, in the 1990 Benetton um, at Suzuka. Uh, first time in the car and ran there and finished second. Two PK's teammates, so they had one two in the first race that Roberto did with them. I think that you know that shows that the car was very good, the package was very good um, because Suzuka's not an easy track. Um, and Roberto did a very solid job there. But, you know, I didn't really see anything exceptional from in Nanini's career um, up to that point. But um, I don't think he would have been a 1994 uh, world champion. He might have, as I say, improved a bit, but I don't think he was really of the quality of, of somebody like um, 
like Michael Schumacher coming through the, the, the field there. So very interesting to see what would happen, but I think the car was very good. Next question is from Beardio Backpain, a friend of the show, and he left us a five-star review and asked this question or raised this topic. He said, I think the 1993 Australian Grand Prix is one of Ayrton Senna's greatest victories as he totally mullered the Williamses with an inferior car in the dry, and yet it seems it's one of those wins lost in the midst of time, with the only significance to it being Senna's last GP win and final race with McLaren and the reconciliation with Prost. Mark, what do you think? Does Australia 93 deserve more recognition in terms of Senna's greatest victories? Yeah, I think um, Beardy, if I can call him Beardy, is, um, is, is, is probably spot on there because it had such historical significance. You know, the, the reconciliation and Ayrton's last race from McLaren, it, it, his actual performance tends to be forgotten. Um, which it was, it was quite sensational. He said, although Adelaide Streets meant the McLaren was probably at its least disadvantaged to the Williams on that sort of track where it's about chassis balance, which the McLaren had, especially by this stage of the season, and, and good torque, which the V8 Cosworth had, that they accounted for more than at, at, at more traditional circuits. Um, but he still shouldn't probably have been on pole, and certainly not by over half a second. And he then just took command of the race too, totally dominant. Um, yeah, this was against Alain Prost in his last ever race with the fourth title already long ago wrapped up, but still, yeah, it was absolutely sublime performance from him. I think it's one of those sort of things where, uh, as you say, Mark, the, the, uh, the McLaren was pretty good for that type of track. Um, but Senna was on pole um, and dominated the race. I mean, half a second. Um, on pole by, I mean, the car, the car was obviously very good, but when he was focused, when Ayrton Senna was focused on what he was doing, he just got the job done. I mean, it was his last race with McLaren, it meant a lot to him. Um, you would never hear Senna moaning over the radio about stuff, you know, at that point in time, the, the radio communication didn't really exist, he only, he only talked about it in the pits normally. But, you know, he, he's talked a few times about um, it's an out-of-body experience, and when he gets onto that level, you know, there is nothing else going on. He just, it, it's just him, the car, and every lap is about being 100% precise and just exploiting the car to the maximum. And I think, you know, that, that race in Adelaide that weekend was just one of those experiences. He got himself onto that level and nothing was going to knock him off that level unless something broke or fell off or whatever, but it didn't happen. So, you know, he won that race well and truly by being Ayrton Senna. Not much else, to be honest. Yeah, I think you watch that race back and you hear the stories about it. Ayrton was a man possessed that weekend to make sure that he won his final race. And uh, as the guys hinted at there, I think an Alain Prost, who was about to head into retirement, probably wasn't going to be the sharpest foe around the streets of Adelaide. But let's move on to a question from Patrick Hodgen, who also left us a review. Thank you, Patrick. We can probably get through this one quite quickly, but he basically asked, who at the time was the pairing you had a hunch about being the eventual derailment of the Ferrari juggernaut before the Renault Alonso combination finally managed it in 2005. So if we think to the early 2000s, and we can't pick Renault Alonso as our answer here, Gary, who, what, which combination would you say was one where you thought they might do it? Um, I've never really looked at that pairing you know, at all. I've never really sort of saw how to put that together it was it's one of those sort of things where things happen for reasons and i think you know whenever we look at um 
at Ferrari with uh, Michael Schumacher and Ross Brown. That was an ideal pairing. Um, but then you have to take into account the, the, the second driver as well. And during that period as well, you know, the Irvine and then Barrichello uh, drivers as, as second drivers were, were perfect for keeping the momentum up, keeping Michael honest, I suppose you might call it. But nobody knew like Michael what, what uh, he had to do on a Sunday afternoon. He was, he was very, very good. You know, level of Ayrton Senna, to be honest. He could just pick a car up and, and do the things he needed to do. Um, but as I say, I've never really looked at that. It's momentum that gets things like that happening. It's belief in the, in the guy you're working with. Um, Mike, um, Ross would ask Michael to do the impossible, and, and he'd do it. You know, just go out lap after lap after lap and uh, be able to do things that nobody else could do. So, you know, for instance, at Jordan in 99, looked like he had the potential at the time, but mentally too weak. Um, you know, he, he would fall, fall down just as quickly as, as he would be up there, and you never really knew why. So I, I don't think I've ever looked at something and saw this dominant dominant pairing that, that was Michael Schumacher and, and uh, Ross Braun. What about you, Mark? Did uh, Was there an obvious candidate to you that you thought would dethrone Schumacher? Well, as a team-driver combination, it, it wasn't clear because the McLaren were always traditionally in that era the, the, the strongest competitors. But Renault were coming up. But in terms of drivers... Um, for me, Alonso was always the heir apparent. It wasn't, it wasn't Kimi, it wasn't Montoya. I'd thought that ever since they all made their debuts in 2001. I thought some of the things Alonso was doing with that Minardi were quite extraordinary. And I recall someone, a, a reader, he'd added up the driver's scores that I, we, I used to give a, like, to give a driver's score after each race. And this guy had added them all up and found that I'd rated Alonso second only to Schumacher in that debut season he did with the Minardi, which given that he was running so far down because it was a Minardi, was deemed ridiculous and ridiculed. But I stood by it then. I stand by it now. Had he been in a top car in 2001, I believe he would have been contending for the title straight away, just as Hamilton later did. He was that good. So while Renault wasn't as well financed as McLaren at the time, because even when Alonso was in Minardi, he was a Renault driver, uh, Renault was, uh, had a pretty awful start to the, the, the decade, but they were, they were coming up. And it wasn't as well as finance as McLaren. It wasn't as big a team. It didn't have Adrian Newey on board, but I still felt that Renault would be good enough that Alonso could do the rest. It was possible. And as it happened, the, the regulation tweak of the no-tire stops in 2005 that we talked about earlier spoiled it a little bit because it took Ferrari out with a sledgehammer and just you know made, made them not contenders. Um, so that sort of lessened Alonso's achievement when he finally done it. But we finally got to see the proper slugout between Ferrari and Alonso Renault in 2006, of course. That's interesting. I was expecting that to be a mix of Raikkonen and Montoya, who briefly got a mention. Um, I would pick Montoya, I think. I think as soon as he duffed Schumacher up in Brazil 2001, I thought, right, however long it's going to take him and Williams to get it together, they're the ones that will do it. But they didn't, and we'll come back to explaining that in the future, I'm sure. Next question, Mark, you can tackle, which is from Dave Meakin, who says, can you discuss Frentzen's struggles at Williams in 1997 and 98 after all the hype around him? Of course, Williams went to great lengths and spent a long time evaluating Frentzen and trying to get him. And they then booted out world champion Damon Hill to make room for him. So why didn't it work, Mark? Uh, the hype, I think, came from the myth that he was quicker than Schumacher at Mercedes in the sports car. 
And this was built around the way that it each approached the first tests uh, for the junior drivers. And, and Michael, by all accounts, built up his knowledge of the car at first, whereas Frenson just went all out and attacked straight away and relied on his talent to sort it out. And that was just on that day. And he, he I think, I don't recall now, but maybe the track got slower subsequently, and he, but he ended up as the, the fastest. Um, but the reality, reality of it, when it counted for real, Schumacher was always the cutting edge of the Mercedes Group C team. In 91, the Merck, as we talked about earlier, wasn't as fast as the Jaguar, which was being run by Ross Braun. But Ross noticed that every time Schumacher got in it, it suddenly became a pain. And then as soon as anyone else got in it, it fell back down to its natural level. So that Mercedes myth was part of it. And the other, the other I think, was a compliment that Senna had paid him after following his Sauber and testing. And, and, and Frenson was a very talented driver, terrific car control, but being a top driver is about more than just that. And after being dropped by Williams, he finally delivered on his potential that great 99 season that Gary was talking about with Jordan. And, but he's in a sympathetic environment there. And he was then outpaced by Yano Trulli there the following year. But at Williams, Villeneuve totally ruled that environment. Villeneuve was already in place there, don't forget. And he was very smart and savvy in a way that Frenson could never be. Plus, Jacques was, you know, he was as brave as a lion. And that that combination was perfect for Outsyke and Heinz Harald, which Villeneuve absolutely did. And there was never any question of who the number one driver there was. And that, that made Villeneuve a perfect Williams driver, given the environment that Frank and Patrick headed and gendered there. No nonsense. Get on with it. Which was absolutely the worst imaginable environment for Frenson, who needed a bit of support. And uh, yeah, ultimately... Great driver, but if you're talking about what separates that from the the the, the you know the the ones who achieve um, multiple success, he was probably just a bit too passive and not tough enough. But he was very talented. The one thing about uh, Heinz Harald Frensen was he he always wanted to get himself involved in um, the technical side of it. He 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 sort of wanted to engineer the car and. Um, I remember somebody telling me one time he, he sent sketches to Arrows when he was driving for them um, about changing the geometry on the rear suspension and how they could go about doing it. Um, you know, so at Arrows that was okay. At Jordan that would be okay. But you know, if you if you went back to whenever he drove for Williams, if you went to Patrick Head or if he went to Patrick Head with something like that, I think you know I know Patrick Head fairly well. Um, he wouldn't take that very well, and he would say it how it is. Um, so I think the environment was very, very important to to somebody like um, Frenson, as was as it was to somebody like Fisichella. The environment changed Fisichella so much, and I think it did the same for Heinz Hall Frenson. You know, he was he was very good at Mercedes, um, but again, Villeneuve was one of the worst possible teammates. Uh, it's just one of those sort of things. He got himself involved in too much of the other side of the the situation, as opposed to just focusing on actually driving the car itself. Um, but he was a good driver, a very solid driver, but just needed the environment to be right. All I heard there was he couldn't live with Jacques Villeneuve as his teammate. Um, so that's the summary there. Final question then comes from TC. Uh, and he says, is Schumacher's, is Michael Schumacher's Hungary 1998 drive overrated? Uh, thanks a lot, TC. We already get asked why we don't do more positive coverage of Michael on the show. So... Uh, yeah, this is a great question, but it's come from TC. It's not come from me. However, TC does say, I'm not being deliberately contrarian. This is a race that McLaren lost, not a race that Ferrari won. Hakkinen's unreliability, McLaren's inability to order DC through, 
and then DC's own performance totally gifted the race to Michael. TC says, I watched the 1998 and 99 seasons over lockdown, and after finishing Imola 99, I was very shocked that it isn't regarded as highly as Hungary 1998. A very similar, you could argue, better performance, and on home turf, no less, so it's a forgotten classic. Hungary 1998, of course, is the famous race where uh, Ross Braun switched Michael to a three-stop strategy to try to jump the McLarens. I think he asked him to pull out a gap of 25 seconds in 19 laps or something like that, and Michael delivered. So, Gary, this is one of Michael's greatest drives, which remembered as one of his greatest drives. Is that justified, or has TC got a point that maybe this is a race McLaren threw away? You know, it's one of those sort of things, TC. It's just it's very, very difficult. When you, when you actually look back at something, you're looking at it with hindsight, you sort of know what happened, you know the results, and you're you're reading the race slightly differently. Um, it's it's a I think it was a fantastic drive, and again, it goes back to Ross Braun asking Michael Schumacher to sort of do the impossible, um, and he would always raise to, raise to the game. You know, he would he would never he would never counter it. He would know what he had to do, and to do those whatever it was, nineteen laps and pull back twenty five seconds, every one of them had to be, you know, flat out. I think it was one mistake, but every one of them had to be flat out. You had to be right on the limit with it all. Um, but he would buy into that, and he would respond to it, and he'd actually probably enjoy it, because there's nothing a racing driver likes more than being let loose to drive absolutely flat out. You know, at the end of the day, if you have to poodle around, it's such an annoying uh, sport. You can be like, like um, we got at the minute with Lewis Hamilton and the Pirelli tyres, for example. You know, most of those races out front he's on a Sunday afternoon drive. It wasn't like that in those days because you had the pit stops. And the Ross asked Michael to do an extra pit stop and have to pick up that time, you know, it was just incredible. Yeah, okay, for sure. You know, McLaren had a few problems with their car and uh, and David Coulthard wasn't quick enough. But at the end of the day, Michael didn't know that halfway through the race. And that's whenever you got to make it count. So whenever he got the, the, the uh, call from Ross... He would start to deliver then, and you know you're 25 seconds behind somebody. You could say, "Oh, I'm never going to do this," or you could say, "Oh, this is going to be fun," and away you go. And, and Michael was always willing to buy into that and get it done. So I think, as I say, Emily may have been good, but I, I think that, um, that that race in Hungary was exceptional. Yeah, well, I I concur absolutely. It was an extraordinary drive. Um, McLaren did have a problem with Hakkinen's car. The the roll bar mountain had dislodged and it was randomly getting wedged in the suspension. And then, um, yeah, McLaren did take a little bit too long to move Mike, uh, Mika out of the way for DC, who then became their main hope. Um, and Michael had to pull out, uh, you know, enough of a gap to get an extra pit stop to, to, to win it. But to, to do that, he did still have to produce those 19 qualifying laps. And when you look in detail at those laps, the sequence of laps and the fuel load he would have been on at the time, the best of them were, in fact, better than his qualifying lap. It was a truly extraordinary performance. If he'd... If all had gone well at McLaren, it wouldn't have mattered to the outcome. McLaren was a much faster car around there than the Ferrari. It had qualified four-tenths faster. But that doesn't detract from the level of Schumacher's performance on the day. It was an extraordinary performance. Um, Imola also, he was, um, you know, again, he he had to pull out a a pit stop worth of of gap over DC on that occasion and and managed it. So it was a similar sort of pattern. But um, I don't think that 
uh, diminishes his hungry performance. So no, I don't think it was overrated. No, I watched uh, Imola back after uh, TC's recommendation. Um, so thank you for that, TC. It's always good to have an excuse to dive into the F1 TV app. Uh, they don't pay us to plug it, but it's very good to go back and look at all these old races. And Imola 99, of course, is the famous race where Hakkinen crashed when he was trying to build a lead uh, before a pit stop coming out of the last corner. So again, it basically ended up with Schumacher trying to beat Coulthard, uh, so perhaps the, the weaker of the two McLarens. And DC had a lot of uh, traffic around one of Schumacher's pit stops. So yeah, I think the, the nature of the hungry race um, probably means that that stint in particular is justifiably as famous as it is. We'll leave it there for part one of our series finales. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question and of course to those of you who did so via a five-star podcast review as well. I can't tell you how much it means to all of us to have so many positive comments every week about the show. It means it means a lot and it's good motivation for me to start rummaging through old books and magazines to put together a third series. Thanks to Gary and Mark for their insight today. We'll let them put their feet up now before bringing in another dream team next week to take more of your brilliantly varied Bring Back V10s questions. 